0: Hello, this is Dr. Mike Barnett with the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our podcast, and I pray that today's message will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. We are engaging our people at First Baptist Church in an emphasis called Who's Your Mission? It is a challenge to personal soul winning and personal evangelism for the year 2023. We've asked our people to ask God for at least one soul to be burdened for that they might go after that soul and win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of these current messages. And I pray that they will encourage you to be a soul winner and go after one soul that needs to be saved now and to know Jesus now. I pray these messages will help you. And again, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Deborah, Cole, and Jay. It's always a joy to have uh... Come here, Coop. Come here. God bless you, man. All right. That's an that's a every Sunday tradition. He's going to grow up one day, and he won't be running by no more one of these days. Um, it's always a joy to share the platform with Deborah. And uh, thank you for singing today, Deborah. And it's very evident Rick's been working with you. Amen. (laughs) No, she's blessed beyond measure with a gift song. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and 7. You know, we're going to make much of Jesus today because in days like this, We need to make much of Jesus, and uh, the whole world, it just seems, has been turned upside down the last few years, hasn't it, and uh, times are hard for many, many people. We just lost one of our beloved uh, church members. Actually, we didn't lose her. We know where she is. Uh, Miss Melva Emerson passed away this week, and we'll be having a celebration service, and praise service for her life unto the Lord on Wednesday. You'll be getting more information about that through our media page, and, and keep your eyes open about that, and many others uh, struggling uh, during this holiday season. And so I wanted to come and preach today about the hope that we have in Jesus, and I want to make much of the Lord and tell you a little bit about Isaiah 9, 6. How many of you have ever received a Christmas card with this verse on it? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice and with righteousness. From henceforth, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Have you ever seen that on a Christmas card? It's a wonderful Christmas verse. It's one of my favorite verses. part uh, of one of my favorite of the Old Testament books, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet. He spoke much of the grace of God and the mercy of God and the help of God, especially in the last 27 verses or chapters of his book. The premier chapter of this prophet is chapter 53, where the Lamb of God... Our Savior is portrayed, and his cross is uh, prophesied with great detail. um, His crucifixion. That's the text that says, Surely he has borne our griefs. Isn't it marvelous when you have a loss in your family that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows? Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's our Savior. That's the cross. That's the incarnation. And our text tells us of his birth being foretold. The evangelical prophet the prophet of good news. Isaiah prophesied these things 740 years before the angels would break into the sky over Bethlehem and say to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you glad tidings. And Isaiah chapter 7 through 9 is really the whole of this Christmas section in Isaiah. Isaiah. When you ask me to read the Christmas story, we say, well, let's go to the Gospel of Luke, and so we should, but you can also go to Isaiah chapter 7 through chapter 9 and have the Christmas story, the theology behind Christmas, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that wonderful verse you all know uh, from Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Well, our text continues that wonderful prophetic note about this child who would be born. Now, there's something we need to to do real quickly. I need to kind of take you to the classroom, if you don't mind, for a few moments to really get the truth and the impact of this prophecy of the birth of Christ and the many names we would call him and how we would benefit from him as described in Isaiah 9-6. A principle of understanding Bible prophecy, whether it's prophecy that foretells the second coming of Christ or prophecy that foretells the first coming of Christ, there is a principle for understanding and interpreting prophetic text many of them have what we call both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Sometimes, as in the case of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, there is a near fulfillment. In other words, a a young woman married and had two sons, and those sons were assigned. And it was a near fulfillment of Isaiah seven I'm going to talk to you about that in just a few moments. But the ultimate far fulfillment was the birth of our Lord in Bethlehem some 740 years later. Also, when you, under, when you look at Bible prophecy, you've got to understand at times there's a foreshadowing something partially is fulfilled or something is similarly fulfilled. And the major fulfillment, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, His birth, His second coming, or His ministry. Well, Isaiah seven fourteen, that wonderful text that prophesies the virgin birth is one of those texts that have a near and a far fulfillment. And what was taking place was it was a hard and difficult time in the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. It was a very difficult time. War was on the horizon. Let me ask you something. Does it seem like war is on the horizon for us? Times were economically uh, hazard. Hazard economically was always on uh, looming before us. Does it seem that way today? They were having troubled times. People were hurting. People were struggling. And I want to tell you what, it was a time of great sin and wickedness and evil and perversion in the nation. And God was, had his hand of judgment almost to come down upon them, especially the, the uh, uh, people of Judah. Well, what happened was, is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom... And the king of Syria formed a league because the Judean king would not join them against the mighty Assyrian empire. So they joined a league and basically it went like this. We're going to take you over, we're going to destroy you, and then we're going to turn and fight the Assyrians. And the king was upset and nervous and he prayed to the Lord. And you can read Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz Uh, struggling and the Lord said to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah the Lord said ask for a sign and King Ahaz in his pompous I want to just call it hypocrisy folks let's just call it for what it is he he said oh no I'm not going to ask of you a sign and God got angry with him and said I'm going to give you one anyway now this is all in a nutshell basic stuff Uh, When I said the classroom, I didn't mean PhD studies, I meant freshman high school stuff. Amen. (laughs) This is this is the way we explain, I have to explain it to myself. And so what happened was is he gave him a sign and said, Behold, a virgin's gonna conceive and bear a son, and you're gonna call him God with us. And what he was telling not only King Ahaz, but the Davidic line of kings that God's gonna keep his covenant, God's gonna keep his promise and he's going to protect and preserve the lineage of David, the Davidic throne. And, of course, it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But the nearness is is found in chapter 8. Isaiah married, and he had a son. He had two sons who were signs of this prophecy being fulfilled. And I want you to look at chapter 8 real quick. He says, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take a great roll and write it with a man's pen concerning. And look at that name. Have you ever seen that name before? Meher shal hal Isaiah was told, name your son Meher Shal-Hal-Hashbaz. We'll just call him Monty. <laughs> All right. We can't do that, though. We can't change the name because there's a message in that name. That name means hasten to the spoil. And he's telling the enemies of Judah, "Uh, you better get what you can get because you're going to be spoiled. You're going to be ransacked. And, of course, they were when the Assyrian would take the armies of Israel away. And so that was the near fulfillment but also contained in that we shall call his name Emmanuel. They may have back then, but it wasn't God with us in the flesh. It was ultimately, ultimately fulfilled in Christ in the incarnation when God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we have a further prophetic note in our text, our wonderful text of Isaiah 9:6. I want you to look at chapter 8 and 22 and see a little bit more about uh, the context. It is a difficult time. It says, And they shall look unto the earth, and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation." When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the nations. You read the New Testament, you have Galilee is in the north, and it's where the Sea of Galilee is. That's the region, that's what the region's named after. And you have the tribe of Naphtali way up in the north, and Zebulun in the north. Some 20 years later, the Assyrian Empire would come and take the northern kingdom, and Zebulun and Naphtali, the two tribes of our text, would be the first ones to fall, and they would suffer the blunt of the brutality of the Assyrians. Terrible things would take place. A wicked empire that that would be used to judge the sin of God's people Israel. But in the New Testament... When Jesus was born and he began his ministry, it says, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali have seen a great light. And that's where he had his headquarters, was in the Galilean area. His light shone brightest in his earthly ministry in the areas where the judgment was darkest. Doesn't that sound like something Paul said when he told us in the book of Romans, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There's not a person in darkness, such dark, black darkness, that God cannot shine his light and save them and deliver them through Jesus Christ. And this text where he says, for unto us... This light comes, and this joy comes, and this deliverance comes, and this salvation comes, and this grace comes. Why? Because unto us, a child is born, and a son is given. I wonder how many of those people, the descendants of those who were under the judgment of God, who lived in those areas, of the new, and when Jesus entered into that area and started preaching and doing miracles and healing the blind and the lame and doing a great work and bringing about the mercy and kindness of God to show forth that he was the Messiah. I wonder how many of them thought of Isaiah chapter 9. I pray they went back to the word of God and realized he was indeed the Messiah who had come, the son of David. Well, this tells us of Jesus. It is fully fulfilled in Christ Jesus, this Christmas account. And so on this Christmas morning, what I want to do is I want to just go down verse 6 and 7 and talk about these names for a little bit. Now, I want to tell you, next year, I've asked the Lord to let me. I hope He does. If not, He'll steer me in the direction I need to go, and I hope I follow. But I've asked the Lord, Lord, next Christmas season, next holiday season... Let me take every one of these wonderful names in Isaiah 9, 6 and do a series of messages all the way through the Christmas season and culminating on the day before Christmas. I think next year, Sunday's Christmas Eve, is it not, Miss Tracy? And uh, Christmas Day doesn't fall on Sunday again until 2033. Can you believe that? Do you know how old you'll be in 2033? So I'm glad I'm here today on Christmas Day. Well, this is Jesus. He brings light into darkness. And let's look at these wonderful names. Well, uh, the first name is Wonderful Counselor. Believe it or not, among the Hebrew scholars, there's a little bit of a debate. It's a friendly debate. Nobody's calling each other bad names. A little more civil than the political debate we're in in our country today. But some say that the word wonderful is connected to counselor, wonderful counselor. Others say, well, wonderful is the name that stands all of its own. And others say, well, wonderful precedes every one of these other names, I don't think the grammar suggests that it refers to every one of those wonderful names, and I'm not so sure if it should be Wonderful Counselor or Wonderful, comma Counselor. I, I'm not that sharp in Hebrew studies, so I don't know. But I do know this. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. If you don't think he's so wonderful, you need to spend more time with him and pray and talk to him and get in the Word and let him talk to you. He's wonderful. Wonderful, and indeed, he is a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. There is not a problem, an issue, a quandary that you face, that we do not need the counsel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the living word revealed in the written word. He is our counselor. He is sent the third person of the Godhead, co-equal as God just as he, the Holy Spirit. And he is our inner counsel who leads us and empowers us and teaches us in the written word because we know the living word. He is a wonderful counselor. You can hear him and you can understand his counsel in the precepts and the principles and even the people of the Bible and their experiences. That's how he counsels us and he leads and guides and it's all centered in the word of God the written word of God. A wonderful counselor. I'll tell you this much there's not a one of you including me that's ever followed the wisdom and counsel of Christ contained in the word of God and has not been blessed and satisfied and happy in the Lord. Amen. He is a wonderful counselor. You know, people often come to me, I guess it's because it's my position as a pastor, and the, I, I can't rank the questions that I can't answer, but among the top, I would tell you is, is preacher, what's the will of God for me in this case? Well, if the Bible doesn't speak to it, I don't have an answer. I don't know. If the Bible does speak it, it could very well be I haven't found it yet in Scripture and forget about it or hadn't looked at it in that way or read it correctly. And and in that case, I don't know uh, at all. But I want to tell you, when you don't know the will of God, it's good to seek people who will have some wisdom. I've done that many times, do it often, very often. Seek the wisdom of people, men and women of God, who love the Lord. But sometimes the wisest person will say, I don't know. You know what? I enjoyed being a pastor a whole lot more after I learned to answer that way than I did before. Amen? I don't know. But let's find out. Well, how do I find out? You go to a counselor. You go to a counselor. And you say, well, where's a good counselor? Well, you ought to have an appointment with one every morning. Now, at First Baptist Church, this is Hebrew for amen or oh me. You ought to have an appointment with the wonderful counselor every morning. And a good counselor will speak to you, and you speak to him. You say, well, preacher, should I speak to him first or he speak to me first? Well, I will not tell you, it doesn't matter if you're not meeting with him. Just get after it. All right? Just get after it. And spend time with him. And he's your counselor. You know, a lot of times he guides by precept. You can open up the word of God of the great counselor. I'm already preaching one of those sermons from next year, I know. But you can get in there and you can say, Boy, that's exactly what I ought to do. That's what the Bible says. And I'm going to do it. And that's, that's a precept. Sometimes it's a principle. Sometimes it's a principle that you live by that God gives you. And then sometimes you you read about an individual described in Scripture about what you ought to do and ought not do. And that's how the counselor counsels you. But I want to share this with you, Uh, brother. Most of the time, it's this fellowship with Jesus. His yoke is easy. And when you're yoked up with him, he's the lead ox and he'll guide you where you need to go. And it's just to follow along Jesus like you do in every area of life. And you don't have to worry about the counsel you need next week because the counsel you need today is enough. So he's a wonderful counselor. Why is he so wonderful? Then i got to move on. Well, I'll tell you why he's so wonderful. Look at at the beginning of verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Do you know that is a fully loaded, packed Christmas gift You open that thing up, and it explodes with great joy in your face. That is full of theology. For unto us a child is born, the humanity of Christ. He became one of us. Unto us a son is given, the deity of Christ. It wasn't a son who was born. He's not the son because of genealogy or chronology. He's the son because of essence. In the Old Testament, and when it refers to the Messiah, even in the New Testament, the Son of God, it's referring to essence. It's referring to deity. It's referring to him being at union and one with the Father, the Trinity, if you will. But a child is born. That is Jesus, born in Bethlehem, becoming one of us, becoming one of us. And by the way, listen, Jesus did not become... A man, the son of God, did not become a child. Now hear me. To live the life of God. Are you confused? He came to live the life of Adam. So our sin could be placed upon him. He's the second Adam. The eternal son of God became the second Adam to live the perfect life so we could have a sacrifice for our sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe that's wonderful. And he lived as man should live. He met every character quality of God that God demands. The criteria is in Christ. He's our standard. He met the standard of God. He lived exactly how Adam should have lived and how each of us should live. And that tells us we fall short of the glory of God but he's a wonderful counselor. Also, what's he called in this text? He's called the mighty God. He is the mighty God. He's mighty for our battles and our struggles. There's so much to say here, and maybe the Lord will let us say it next Christmas season, but let's focus on one thing. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to save. There is not a problem you have There is not a battle you are engaged in on any level. There is not a situation you're in that Jesus is not mighty to solve and save. You just got to be obedient and pray and let him counsel you and follow his counsel. We're in the midst of who's your mission. And I've had people come to me and say, Preacher, I've got a hard mission. I don't believe God can save them. I don't believe God can save the mission I have on my heart. Well, first thing, don't doubt it because God put it on your heart. Put them on your heart. You don't know what God's going to do. You don't know what God can do with people. He's put them on your heart. That's one thing. You care about them. You love them enough to make them your mission. So let's not doubt God. He's mighty to save. He can save anybody. You know what? Look at Moses. Look at the Apostle Paul. Two of the premier leaders, one of the Old Testament Moses, one of the New. You know what both of them dudes were? They were murderers. They were murderers. And God was mighty to save them. God was mighty to save them. And God can save your mission too. He's mighty to save. He's our mighty God. Look at... Look at some wonderful words. Look at chapter ten, verse twenty-one. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. He's a mighty God who draws people to Himself. He's mighty God. You know, uh, you know what you do when the devil attacks. Now. You might want to say, well, I fight him. I'll just stand flat-footed and fight temptation. No, you don't do that. Let me tell you, the Bible tells you to be on guard and to watch. And when temptation comes and you're under attack and you see the enemy coming, a guard doesn't pull out his weapon and start fighting. He alerts the commander. You alert the commander when you need the mighty army of God behind you. He is the mighty God, and he will deliver you. He is the mighty God. He can save anybody. He can solve any problem. He's the mighty, mighty God. Also, he's referred to as the everlasting father. I could imagine when Isaiah preached this that some of the religious leaders of the day uh, were, might have been a little offended. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, you notice the term Father is applied to God. is very rare. It's very rare. As a matter of fact, when Jesus applied it to the Father in the model prayer, it was revolutionary for that day to call God, Father. I mean, think about it. We call the mighty God, Father? How in the world can we do that? The ancient Hebrews were very hesitant to do so. First of all, in the Old Testament, they were afraid that calling him Father would equivocate him with the pagan gods that surrounded them. The pagan gods were fertility gods, and children were born and it was an awful thing and what they used these children for and they, they had got these false gods as their father. And so in that day, out of desiring to be respectful, I'm sure they were hesitant to refer to Elohim or Jehovah or Yahweh as their father. But Isaiah says he's our everlasting father. But in the New Testament, it becomes so legalistic and such an unholy fear of retribution that only a few people could have such an intimate relationship with God as to call Him Father. It's called being pharisaical. But here, He's our everlasting Father. Jesus came and revealed the Father to us. He is an everlasting Father. Folks, that's a wonderful truth. Everlasting Father. Intimate, close, loving, providing, caring, guiding, disciplining, chastising, meeting all of our needs. That's our Father, our Heavenly Father. And above all, He's everlasting. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't wonderful to know that if you ever enter into a father-child, father-son relationship with Jesus? And by the way, when the Bible says that the Christian people, men and women who know Jesus, are the sons of God, it's not being unwoke. That's not what he's talking about. And I don't. I wouldn't go for that business. There's Bibles that Bibles that do the gender uh, neutral stuff. I've seen some of them, and someone asked me if I wanted one one time. I said, "For what? Uh, you know, uh, make some good firewood." But anyway, um, I won't tell you. Uh, he calls us sons of God, men and women and boys and girls who know Jesus. He calls us sons of God because in the culture in which which Christ came, and In Jewish culture, it was the son who received the inheritance. Amen? So let's just stay where we're at with the old words. Amen? And so he's our everlasting father. Aren't you thankful that when you've entered into a father son relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't you, aren't you, don't you just think he's wonderful for making an everlasting relationship? We are so secure with our father. And then we go on and we come to the another thing, he is the prince of peace. Isaiah was telling these people war is coming. Hard times are coming. It's going to get worse. And I think that message is for America today. Hard times are coming and they're here and it's going to get worse. But he told these people you're going to be conquered. The northern kingdom is going to be destroyed and disbanded. But one is coming who is the prince of peace. And verse 7 describes him as the prince of peace. First of all, notice his kingdom is limitless. There's no end. There will be absolutely no enemy that can attack because when he comes there will again there will be no enemy. His peace will endure. He is a promise keeper. He will keep his promise to David and establish that kingdom of David forever. He is just and right. Are you longing for social justice? I hear about justice all the time these days. I hear about social justice. The other day I saw something about environmental justice. And you know what I said? What is that? Environmental justice. Is a blade of grass going to file suit against me or something? I don't know what's going on with that. But environmental justice? And then there's this kind of justice. Let me tell you something. Justice is justice. And Jesus is just. And we're not going to know justice as God would have us know justice on planet Earth until the Prince of Peace rules from Jerusalem. And so he's the Prince of Peace. All these wonderful titles... Names and attributes of Christ are sandwiched between two statements, and uh, that form a conviction. Notice, he says first at the top, "The government shall be upon his shoulders." Now, many people through the years I heard heard say, "Well, that just means that the government's going to hate him and all." No, no, that's the government being on his back. The government's going to be on his shoulders. That means he's going to shoulder. The burden of rule and reign. That means it'll all be on Him. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. He will and is able to bear that burden of government. He is our burden bearer. And I want to tell you if He can bear the sins of the whole world on the cross, He can bear the rule of the universe. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that in America we're very blessed. Every couple of years we get to have an election. We can send to Washington or to Jackson or across the street or or to Pascagoula who we want to represent us. Every four years we get to elect a president. But I want to tell you something today, folks. I'm not near as concerned about the nation getting a right president or a good president or what we think about the president. I'm concerned that our nation turns to the prince of peace and the king of kings. He's in charge. He's going to take care of it. Let's be citizens of God's kingdom and be thankful that he's our everlasting father and be a witness for him and his ambassadors in this land we call our earthly home. And so the government will be on his shoulders. He can handle it. He can take care of it, and he will. And then the last thing, the zeal of the Lord. Look at the last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord. Not just the Lord, but the zeal of the Lord will perform this. You know what that means? That means we have assurance. It speaks of something that will be done with fervency and with great, great passion, zealousness, the Lord will perform it. Folks, you can be assured of Jesus. Now, look, I can't be assured of a whole lot of things. I really can't. I got some bad news for you. Well, I got some bad news for maybe a few of you. I can't retire anytime soon because I've done looked at my 403B. <laughs> Amen? And uh I'm going to have to keep working for a while, and I hope you let me stay. Amen? And next week will be 22 years, and some of you may be tired of me. You say, well, you're, you're like an old couch. You're, it's time for you to go. But anyway, uh, I hope not, but I, I won't tell you. I, I can go get a job somewhere if I have to. But uh, look, I, but I'm so thankful that my God is the everlasting Father, and he said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to meet your needs. I'm gonna meet your needs. You'll never be begging for bread. I'm gonna meet your needs. God's gonna take care of it. Zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. He's zealous toward us. He's zealous toward us. You can rest assured in that. He's zealous toward your salvation. Aren't you glad to have the assurance of salvation? One of the major problems in the church today is people are not sure that they're saved, and they have doubts about their salvation. I want to tell you, if you're trusting Christ today, I'm not talking about a little prayer you prayed when you were a kid. I'm talking about if you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and no merit whatsoever on your part, none. If you're trusting Christ and Christ alone to get you to heaven and to forgive you of your sins and to dwell in you and use you today, I want to tell you something. The zeal of the Lord, of Hosts will perform it. Will perform it. And that's our Savior. All this wonderful... That's the baby born in Bethlehem. Isn't that an amazing thing? Well, say it with me. One, two, three. He's wonderful. One, two, three. He's wonderful. Amen and amen. Let's stand for our song of appeal. This is Cole Andrews. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. just wanted to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com.